thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of a lecture by Professor Michael Dobson, Director of the Shakespeare Institute at Stratford-upon-Avon. Professor Dobson's lecture, Shakespeare, Amateur Performance and Civic Identity in Britain and Ireland, was given as part of the 2014 UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lecture Series. The lecture was introduced by Dr Victoria Brownlee of the University College Dublin School of English Drama and Film. Good evening, everyone. Um, It's my great privilege tonight to welcome Professor Michael Dobson as the first speaker in the 2014 UCD Abbey Shakespeare Lecture Series. Professor Dobson is the director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon and a global authority on Shakespeare and performance. His book, Shakespeare and Amateur Performance, A Cultural History, published by Cambridge University Press in 2011, is the seminal work on productions of Shakespeare by non-professionals. In addition to a great many scholarly articles and book chapters, he is the author of The Making of the National Poet, Shakespeare, Adaptation and Authorship, and one of two works named A Choice Outstanding Academic Book. Professor Dobson has also edited several prize-winning volumes of essays, including the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare. He's the general editor of Palgrave's Shakespeare Studies monograph series and serves on the editorial boards of the international journals Shakespeare uh, Quarterly and Shakespeare Survey. Michael's work on Shakespeare in theatre and contemporary culture more generally has made him something of a media star. Uh, He's a frequent contributor to the BBC Four Front Row um, and BBC Radio 3's Night Waves and popped up on small screens in in the UK in 2011 when he was invited to contribute um, and comment on the release of the blockbuster movie, movie Anonymous. He can also be seen on YouTube um, presenting video diaries from various Shakespearean locations um, as, part of, as part of the Shakespeare Institute's um, open learning course. Impressively, he's written theatre reviews for every major production of a Shakespeare play in England between 1999 and 2007, and is no stranger to treading the boards himself at directing and performing on both an amateur and professional basis. Michael's interest in the history of uh, Shakespeare in performance has seen him travel to North America, Sweden and Peking, but also to Ireland where he's worked in the archives of the Royal Irish uh, Academy. Tonight he's going to be talking about some of his Irish research as well as his current work on performances of Shakespeare in local contexts in Britain in his talk, Shakespeare, Amateur Performance and Civic Identity in Britain and Ireland. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Professor Professor Michael Dobson. Thank you, Victoria. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Um, And I'm 
in a way, pleased that we're starting at ten past seven because it means that it is not possible uh, for anyone here now to get to the Abbey Theatre to see Twelfth Night tonight. I would have felt a real pang of conscience detaining anybody from seeing the current production of Twelfth Night, which, which Nikki and I went to last night. It's absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, as, you, as you've heard from Victoria, I've seen more Shakespeare than is good for anybody, and I've <laughs> edited Twelfth Night for Penguin, and you know, I've seen some really outstanding productions uh, of Twelfth Night by people like Sam Mendes uh, and Lucy Bailey. But, but um, you know, the current one at the Abbey is is just exceptional, and I, I hope you will all get to go and see it. If I seem uh, at any point tired during this evening's performance, uh, it's because the, tonight is the last uh, the last engagement in a long series of. Um, uh, lectures, seminars, other events that are part of research towards what I hope will be a new project about Shakespeare in public and Shakespeare in different national theatres. Uh, as some of you may have noticed and as, as um, Jane mentioned, it's been Shakespeare's 450th birthday uh, recently and over the four weeks or so that included April the 23rd, 2014, uh, I've been engaging a sort of European fact-finding and partying tour, uh, investigating Shakespeare's public status around this continent. Uh, it's included running a seminar on festive comedy and celebration in Basel, uh, a visit to Brussels, of which more later, appearing on the stage of the Théâtre de l'Odéon in Paris and running a seminar on commemoration at the École Normale Supérieure, hosting Michael Bogdanov, uh, a veteran of the Abbey, of course, in Stratford, and watching horses pull a cardboard birthday cake around the streets of Stratford. You know, there's always something of the school fate about Shakespeare's birthday celebration uh, in Stratford. Uh, then getting to Weimar just in time to conduct uh, a one-hour public interview with Kenneth Branagh, who's now the honorary president of the Deutsche Shakespeare Gesellschaft. Uh, then getting from Germany to Romania to attend an international festival of Shakespearean theatre and run a seminar and give a plenary and make a speech at a university. And we got back from there just in time uh, for me to make a speech about Shakespeare's 450th birthday at the Birmingham University annual meeting, uh, and that was on Wednesday night. Uh, and now here we are in Dublin. Uh, and very nice too. Uh, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to Jane Grogan and the rest of the organisers of this series uh, to make it possible to arrange uh, for this event, the Abbey Theatre, University College Dublin Shakespeare Lecture, to be the culminating uh, exhausted gig on this tour, uh, because it was always liable to be, um, for me at least, and, and definitely not for you, uh, the most emotional. Um, my parents were both addicted to Irish folk music, uh, and as a result, I first visited this city, not just before it had a knitting needle outside the post office, but when it still had a pillar. Uh, and and though I didn't visit the Abbey until later, one of my earliest memories of any sort of live drama uh, is of the Sheemsa National Folk Theatre of Ireland in Tralee. Uh, as a student, I took a special option paper on Yeats uh, with special reference to the plays, and I even persuaded my college to subsidise a 
a visit one vacation to Drumcliff and indeed to Lissadell, uh, where I was taken around by Eva Gorbooth's daughter, uh, who remembered Yeats very well. As a postgraduate, as, I've he- as you've heard, I found an excuse to come to the Royal Irish Academy uh, and to the Rothhouse House Museum in Kilkenny, of which more later, uh, and in the English department at Harvard uh, later in the 1980s, where, when Nikki and I were newlyweds, uh, we were very junior but very grateful colleagues uh, of Seamus Heaney. In fact, if I hadn't specialised in Shakespeare and done all the stuff that that Victoria mentioned, I might conceivably have done J.M. Singh. Uh, So to be asked to give a lecture for UCD and the Abbey uh, feels like a remarkable privilege uh, and perhaps a glimpse of an unlived life into the bargain. Uh, More on Dublin later, but I'm going to start uh, from Stratford. When President Michael D. Higgins uh, made his state visit to the United Kingdom a few weeks ago, his itinerary, I believe at his own insistence, finished up in Stratford. And because part of my job involves being an executive trustee of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and a governor of the Royal Shakespeare Company, I was lucky enough to be involved in his welcome uh, and to witness the speech made from the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. And this picture I've put up really because it comes into the category of things we never thought, thought we were going to see in the 1980s. You know, the President of Ireland on stage in Stratford with Tony Sher, you know, which is you know, there he is over on the left with his reading glasses on. Uh, before that speech, the RSC performed part of the tavern scene from Greg Doran's current production of Henry IV, Part One. And before that, Greg had members of the company read out short passages written by earlier Irish visitors to the town and its theatres. So we heard Oscar Wilde waxing lyrical about his friend Ronald Gower's statue of Shakespeare on its installation outside the original 1879 Shakespeare Memorial Theatre and George Bernard Shaw objecting to the design of that theatre and sending a congratulatory telegram to the governors when it burned down in 1926. (laughs) And we also heard an extract from an essay which I hadn't reread in years, W.B. Yeats' piece, At Stratford-upon-Avon. Yeats went to Stratford in 1901, where in the space of a week he saw Frank Benson's productions of King John, Richard II, Henry IV Part II, Henry V, Henry VI Part II, and Richard III. You know, he, he was clearly feeling lazy because he missed a couple of matinees or he'd have got them all in sequence. Although understandably well nigh overwhelmed by the bustle and detail of all these chronicle plays, Yeats responded imaginatively to the experience, spending much of his essay enlarging on the dichotomy between the pragmatic, efficient Anglo-Saxon Henry V and the dreamy, poetical, and in this reading altogether more Celtic, Richard II, who here sounds remarkably like the younger Yeats. Writing at exactly the point in his career when he was just getting involved in designing and establishing an Irish national theatre, and using words which might have horrified the flower-brewing family who had underwritten the Stratford Theatre's construction and running costs, Yeats approvingly describes the Memorial Theatre as, quote, a theatre that has been made not to make money, but for the pleasure of making it. 
It's just possible that Yeats has in mind here not only Benson's artistic aspirations, but the fact that at the time this theatre was only used by its semi-resident professional company during a brief summer festival season of a few weeks a year. For the rest of the year, its Shakespearean productions were mounted by local amateurs. Folk art and high art venue at once, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, which already included its own library and art gallery and aspired to incorporate an acting school too, was a public enterprise dedicated to staging what was conceived as a national drama. And it was clearly one of the models which Yeats had in mind for the Abbey. Uh, It's a very interesting essay. And... um, as you see, the Memorial Theatre looked strangely Bavarian. You know, it's a very Germanic-looking looking building. It's built just after Bayreuth, uh, and Yeats explicitly and implicitly compares Stratford to Bayreuth throughout the essay. He sees it as a kind of spiritual retreat into a world of art where there's nothing to talk about except what's out on at the theatre. You know, so no change there. Yeah, in what follows, I want to consider two questions which might arise from the juxtaposition of Yeats' vision for the Abbey Theatre and the wider movement towards the establishment of forms of not-for-profit civic and national theatre to which Shakespeare's plays have frequently given rise. One is the question of what it is about Shakespearean drama which has produced this impulse at all. Why it should be that so many national theatres around the world, and local ones too, are adorned with statues or at least busts of Shakespeare. And why at a more local level, Shakespeare should so often have been adopted as the figurehead for voluntary sector dramatic and literary activity. The second is the question of why one sort of simultaneously civic and national Shakespeare should have enjoyed its first flowering in Ireland, albeit a short-lived first flowering, now all but forgotten, but should, at the time when Yeats was establishing the Abbey, have flourished instead in the industrial north of England. There will be an introduction, then two case studies, and a postscript, and then I will stop. As I've argued elsewhere, academic studies of the Shakespearean theatre have tended to overemphasise its status as a professional business. In London, it's true, in Shakespeare's time, live drama had just begun to be offered by entrepreneurs in privately owned auditoriums, often on premises which had belonged to the church until comparatively recently, such as the former priory of Shoreditch, where Burbage built the open-air theatre in 1576, and the former monastery of Blackfriars, which first became an indoor venue not long afterwards. But elsewhere, Elizabethan theatre regularly took place under the sign of the civic. Shakespeare himself probably first saw plays as a boy when his father was responsible for licensing touring players to perform in the Guildhall in Stratford. And in any case, the Elizabethan drama never forgot its roots in communal, seasonal, religious forms of performance. Shakespeare himself, although he provides roles for touring professional players in The Taming of the Shrew and Hamlet, never depicts actors at work in the new designated commercial playhouses, which was such a conspicuous feature of contemporary London. Instead, he alludes to morality plays and mystery plays, wits and pastorals and may games, and he depicts Morris dances and disguisings. Non-professional performance is one of Shakespeare's favourite images of social concord. Shakespearean drama, I would argue, was never quite professional. 
and as one result, it has repeatedly escaped from the realm of the commercial and taken in that of the civic, the philanthropic, the voluntary. A striking example of the sort of cue which Shakespeare provides to those who have from time to time returned his drama from the world of commerce to that of the municipal is provided by the ending of Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, and this picture, of course, is by George Cruikshank. Uh, that's Falstaff down in the foreground uh, at, at, in front of Hearn's Oak. Uh, Cruikshank, of course, is better known for, for illustrating Dickens. Dickens himself staged amateur performances of this play to raise money uh, uh, to buy Shakespeare's birthplace for the nation. Uh, in this scene, the final scene of Merry Wives, as you'll remember, the mercenary and lascivious Sir John Falstaff is lured to a nocturnal rendezvous with Mistress Ford at Hearn's Oak in Windsor Park. But just when he thinks he's about to enjoy a threesome with both Mistress Page and Mistress Ford, he's ambushed by a troop of Windsor townspeople, among them Anne Page, disguised as the Queen of the Fairies, and numerous local children impersonating elves. Uh, and this is the passage in which they, they discuss their rehearsal strategy for this uh, terrific piece of entertainment. This highly moral piece of local amateur drama is put together by citizens under the auspices of the church. The parson of the parish, Hugh Evans, is a leading participant, and it's he who rehearses all the children. Um, I will teach the children their behaviours, and I will be a, a jack and apes also to burn the night with my tabor. To that extent, this is a piece of historical colour, a reminder that this play, although often treated as though it depicted Elizabethan England, is actually set in the reign of Henry IV. It here offers a glimpse of a merrier pre-Reformation England when civic amateur theatre was viewed as what uh, the parson here calls very honest knaveries. Uh, and the church and the stage could be in harmony. What may look to us like a premonition of a local outdoor production of A Midsummer Night's Dream is performed by and for the local community, with a regenerated Windsor as it wants its audience and its cast. It's only appropriate, then, that ever since the 18th century, the burgeoning cult of Shakespeare should regularly have situated, represented and celebrated the playwright in civic contexts. David Garrick's Stratford Jubilee of 1769, for instance, the first great Shakespearean fan festival, simultaneously opened Stratford's new town hall, placed a statue of Shakespeare there, and, and there it still is, and declared David Garrick a freeman of the borough. Uh, and at its climax, uh, Garrick recited his great ode to Shakespeare, surrounded by his actors in front of a statue of Shakespeare on a pedestal. Uh, do remember this grouping, because it's going to come back. You've got actors singing, uh, somebody making a speech uh, all round a statue of Shakespeare, which is being sort of deified behind them. By this stage in his career, Garrick had long been using a similar statue of Shakespeare as the legitimating sign that under his management, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane was a truly national theatre, dedicated to something higher than box office returns. Uh, sacred to Shakespeare was this place designed, this spot designed, sorry, uh, to pierce the heart and humanise the mind. It's part of the beginning of one of his manifesto prologues. 
Uh, and one of his copies of the same statue that gets donated to Stratford Town Hall at the Jubilee is still in Drury Lane's foyer to this very day. It used to be up on the portico, acting like a sort of pub sign. But however important the Stratford Jubilee was from a cultural point of view, and as the first major public celebration of a self-made secular writer at his own birthplace, it has some claim to have inaugurated European romanticism, it was evidently designed by the alderman who part-funded it as an exercise in civic regeneration, a bid to put Stratford on the map as a tourist destination, an exemplary centre of local civilization. Uh, which it indeed became. Once the Jubilee had been staged, the coming of the canal and in time of the railway were assured. Pledging Stratford to Shakespeare, Garrick and the town council laid the foundations of its prestige and its prosperity for centuries to come. This model of basing a project with wider civic benefits in mind around a Shakespeare festival a genre of public event itself related to the kinds of communal entertainment celebrated in Shakespearean comedy, has proved remarkably durable. Only last week, for instance, Nicky and I were at the Festivalul International Shakespeare in Craiova in Romania, a biennial event established in 1994. Uh, Shakespeare does mention one province of what is now Romania, Transylvania, uh, in, in Pericles. You know, the poor Transylvanian is dead who lay with a little baggage. You know, it's amazing how proud Romanians are uh, that Shakespeare mentions one of their fellow citizens as, as a sufferer from syphilis. Yeah. This festival grew from a desire to renew both the theatre and the community in the aftermath of the palace revolution come civil war, which overthrew the Ceausescu regime at the very end of the 1980s. And it now attracts some of the best touring Shakespearean players in the world and has musical, artistic, academic and drama school events attached to it as well. In the year of Shakespeare's 450th birthday and its own 20th birthday, the Cryover Festival included performances by the likes of Propeller, the Beijing People's Arts Theatre, Shakespeare's Globe, the Municipal Theatre of Vilnius, and Cheek by Jowl. But what was more striking was that it also featured, like the Stratford Jubilee, the dedication of a statue intended to consecrate some civic space to Shakespeare. And there it is on the left, I admit it's a fairly creepy statue. It's Shakespeare as a kind of embalmed maggot. Uh, but, but, uh, but there it is. Uh, and you see that the whole space outside the theatre is, is labelled as Shakespeare's by this pyramid. You know, Romanian on one side, uh, English on the other. Yeah, the big public square outside the Marin Sorescu National Theatre is now the Piazza Shakespeare. And the municipality, which along with Cryover's university has generously supported the festival, is now using this event as the centrepiece of a bid to be named European City of Culture in 2021. While we were there, various Cryovan dignitaries spoke of their city's aspiration to be considered as Romania's answer to Stratford, which in some respects, it has to be admitted, is setting their sights pretty low. This analogy would make the festival a sort of biennial jubilee. 
But given that Cryover hosts a great deal of Shakespearean performance, while the 1769 Stratford Jubilee didn't include any, this seems a little misleading. In fact, this present-day Romanian festival seems to me to be much closer in its aims and its procedures to a different pioneering event which used the civic dimension of Shakespearean drama as the launching point for citywide renewal, and this one didn't happen in England at all. Instead, between 1802 and 1819, it happened here, in Kilkenny, on the River Nore. First case study. In the mid-1980s, when I was researching my PhD thesis about the performance history of Shakespeare's comedies between the 1660s and the 1760s, I set out to examine all the copies of their stage versions which the Bodleian Library in Oxford possessed. Around shelf marks VET A51847 and M ADS 128D4, I came upon a particularly striking cache of such things, in fact sometimes of multiple copies of the same edition, often bound up together. Many were elaborately marked up in faded pen, their annotations recording cuts and stage business and the exact lengths of time that different acts took to perform. From notes about some expensive-sounding scenery, furthermore, and from the sheer number of part books and prompt books involved, it was clear that I had stumbled upon the traces of some very large-scale theatrical activity. The printed text in question dated from the mid-1790s to about 1815, a period of theatre history I thought I knew well. But though many of them had been supplied with manuscript cast lists... I was able to recognise only one name among the players, that of Miss O'Neill, who had apparently played Desdemona and Juliet. The Irish actress Eliza O'Neill, seen here playing Belvedere in Otway's Venice Preserved, was a major star of the London stage between 1813 and 1819. And there she earned such a reputation as a tragedian that before Jane Austen went to see her perform, she carefully picked up an extra handkerchief. You know, she writes this in one of her letters. In fact, during her brief heyday, she was so highly regarded that, as Marcus Risdell has recently shown, the unrivaled gallery of theatrical portraits assembled by the actor Charles Matthews, which is now the collection of the Garrick Club, was originally hung to showcase as its centrepiece not an image of Burbage or Garrick or Sarah Siddons, but a full-length painting of, quote, Miss Eliza O'Neill as the tragic muse. But who were all these other people she had been acting with? I double-checked, but their names nowhere appeared among the personnel of either Drury Lane or Covent Garden or in any of the biographical dictionaries which covered the provinces. It was only when I finally came upon this larger book, shelved a little distance away from all those prompt books, that I was able to start piercing together the story of the private theatre of Kilkenny. Uh, and incidentally, though Patrick Lonergan and Deirdre McFeely have recently compiled a splendid database of Shakespearean performances in Ireland, it doesn't cover non-professional performances, and so it wouldn't have helped me, uh, even if the internet had been invented. Amateurs in Ireland were almost wholly irrelevant to the thesis I was supposed to be writing, and therefore of compelling interest. <laughs> so I wrote to the Society of Theatre Research, who sent me the princely sum of £25, and I set off for Kilkenny via an overnight stay in Dublin. 
Incidentally, I would like to say one word to any of the younger generation who have ever complained about Ryanair, and that word is C-Link. <laughs> I eventually arrived in Dublin in the evening, seasick and exhausted, without having booked anywhere to stay, trusting you know, the, the, the native hospitality of the city, the way one does. Uh, you know, these, were, these were the ancient times before Expedia. It was the spring of 1985, and resounding around the city from a stadium came the sound of a rock band called U2. Everyone in Ireland under the age of 30 was in Dublin that night, and they had all had the sense to book a bed in advance. I began to despair of ever finding anything out about the private theatre of Kilkenny, and it was only with the help of a kind taxi driver that I eventually obtained a bed for the night at all, somewhere way out to the north beyond Howth. Uh, in the house of a suspicious old woman who was ahead of her time only insofar as she insisted on seeing, quote, some picture ID. I I still remember my relief when she turned out to be willing to accept a Bodleian Library reader's card. Thousands don't, sometimes including the Bodleian Library. I was relieved, too, the following afternoon to walk into the Roth House Museum in Kilkenny and immediately see this. Uh, and incidentally, I'm extremely grateful to Rasheen McQuillan at the Roth House Museum, who's, who's been very uh, inventive about, about getting, um, getting these, these pictures from there. Some of them are hung behind pillars, which makes it almost impossible to photograph them without special technology. And soon I knew a good deal more about the provenance of all those prompt books back in Oxford. These ascendancy gentlefolks used to take over the playhouse at Kilkenny for a three- or four-week season of serious drama every year between 1802 and 1819, staging orchestral concerts, poetry recitals and charity balls into the bargain. So as not to offend those who thought that respectable women should not perform in public, they hired professional actresses to play female roles. Uh, this is Eliza O'Neill in one of her signature roles uh, as Juliet, a priceless hand-tinted print uh, which Nikki gave me for my birthday and which now hangs in the Shakespeare Institute, if you ever want to come and look at it. Eliza O'Neill performed with them at two different points in her career. She appeared first in 1812 as a hungry, up-and-coming player of small roles from the Crow Street Theatre in Dublin, who was about to try her luck in London. But when she returned to Kilkenny in 1819, she was a wealthy and established metropolitan star. On this latter occasion, she waived any fee, married the rich Irish MP who was playing Iago and Friar Lawrence, and promptly retired from acting altogether. And hence the many portraits of her, incidentally, in the National Portrait Gallery archive in London, are catalogued under Lady Rickson Beecher. According to that privately printed book, The Private Theatre of Kilkenny, the local playhouse was rendered fit for this calibre of performer by a lavish programme of refurbishment. And I was able to confirm this at the museum. Uh, this is the, the architect's plan for the last set of improvements that, that these people made to it. As you can see, this theatre had a very deep stage to accommodate state-of-the-art perspective scenery. It's as, the stage is as deep as the, the auditorium. I mean, it's huge. Um, and it has an immense green room backstage on the left of this diagram uh, to a, for 
you know, for the social comfort of its patrician actors and their friends. Uh, and in fact, you could put boards uh, right across the pit uh, and, and use the whole theatre as a ballroom. Which, uh, um, yeah, much of the stalls area, much of the area downstairs was was subdivided into private boxes. And in fact, admission prices throughout the house were as high as those for a place in the box at either of the professional theatres royal in London. Despite this luxury, the whole enterprise was dedicated at once to the simulation and the alleviation of distress. All the profits from these performances, which the amateur actors maximised by paying for their own costumes, were donated to funds for local poor relief. When this company performed King Lear, they actually intended that real-life poor toms should not be cold anymore. As the prologue to the first show of the first season put it in 1802, quote, It is benign compassion brings you here, swells the fond sigh and prompts the willing tear, and pity, guardian of the helpless poor, leading her votaries to our grateful door. Above the theatre's proscenium arch was painted the slogan, While we smile, we soothe affliction which sounds like a premonition of comic relief, but in practice, the Kilkenny audience seems to have spent more of its time crying than smiling. The governing idea of this annual festival of semi-professional theatre was that its clientele would be moved by established tragedies and by more recent specimens of comedy la moyante into a state of virtuous fellow feeling with that suffering part of the community which would share in each show's profits. Caring for Shakespearean characters, beginning in 1802 with the cast of The Merchant of Venice, was to extend into caring for the poor. As one epilogue puts it, fictitious tears bid genuine cease to flow, and our feigned sorrows lighten real woe. The moving spirit behind all this was one Richard Power. According to his wealthy fellow performers, Quote, he was eminently gifted for the performance of the Danish prince, a character in whom are combined all the qualities of the soldier and the gentleman. This painting by Joseph Patrick Haverty, who painted Daniel O'Connell at around the same time, depicts an aristocratic amateur performer who, like Hamlet, wants to act his own favourite literary tragedies himself among a few chosen fellow players, with a level of refinement impossible among the vulgar groundlings who frequent merely commercial theatres. In fact, the prologues and epilogues composed by and for the Kilkenny players by the likes of Thomas Moore, the author of Moore's Irish Melodies, regularly assert the superiority of their performances, especially their performances of Shakespeare, to anything available in the public playhouses of London and to anything available on the private amateur stages of England too. The amateurs of Kilkenny began to call themselves the Kilkenny Theatrical Society at exactly the same time that London saw the formation of the Picnic Club, often cited as the first modern amateur dramatic society. And they were at once conscious of the competition and serenely confident of their superiority. The picnics never played Shakespeare, and they had no charitable purpose, as their Irish rivals pointed out. While the picnic club were mere triflers, moreover, the Kilkenny Theatrical Society even claimed to be the true heirs to Garrick, adopting the iconography of his jubilee to their own purposes. At the close of the 1810 season, for instance, quote, 
A scenic painting representing the statue of Shakespeare on an elevated pedestal appeared in the centre of the stage, round which were grouped the whole of the theatrical company singing their songs of farewell. And as you'll recognise, that's essentially a quotation of the iconography of Garrick's Jubilee. You know, they, they, they pretty much reenact it. For once, the immense long-term Irish contribution to the Shakespearean theatre was being acknowledged on Irish soil. And according to Sir John Carr, writing in 1805, Shakespeare's ghost was so impressed that he would soon come to Ireland and make Kilkenny his second home. <laughs> Quote, Oft decked with smiles, his spirit shall explore Erin, thy beauteous vales and classic ground. And every ripple of thy winding gnaw to him shall sweetly as his Avon sound. Not only did Kilkenny's exclusive productions of Shakespeare please the writer's shade, benefit the aesthetic self-esteem of their participants and fill the coffers of local charities, but according to their proponents, they con contributed to the Irish economy and to the cohesion and peace of Irish civil life. The Kilkenny theatrical seasons drew impressive lists of prominent intellectuals, politicians and socialites to the town each year, among them Mariah Edgeworth and Henry Grattan, so that according to one eyewitness, quote, Kilkenny was the Athens and the Bath of the Emerald Isle. It's nice that they're that way round, I think. In the face of the divisive recent trauma of 1798 and Robert Emmett's rebellion, and the continuing tendency of ascendancy landowners to spend their lives and their fortunes in England, the Shakespearean Theatre Festival of Kilkenny claimed one journalist, quote, collected together a great portion of the educated and the affluent and induced them to spend their time and money at home, which probably, but for its attractions, would have been spent abroad. Nor is this all. It often brought into the same social circle many who at other seasons of the year were separated by differences of politics or religion that too frequently and too fatally divide us. There's a sense of Shakespeare providing the means not just of civic renewal, but of a measure of national self-assertion throughout the Kilkenny project. And however unionist most of these rich, rich amateurs presumably were, their achievements would still be remembered with affection by later exponents of a more militantly Irish theatre. The new Kilkenny Theatre, which was founded under the auspices of the Gaelic League in 1902 to offer, quote, Irish plays on Irish lines, explicitly declared that one of the circumstances which had led to its establishment was a desire to mark the centenary of the first season of Powers Theatricals. But, of course, this second Kilkenny Theatre didn't perform any Shakespeare. A century after the Kilkenny amateurs had discovered how to make Shakespeare an ally of their communal interests, and just at the moment when Yeats was considering Stratford as a model for the Abbey, the kind of civic Shakespeare which Kilkenny had pioneered was instead flourishing in northern England. Second case study. What have been called little theatres... Uh, and uh, this plant uses it in a slightly loose sense, I think, or rather too specific sense, I think. Uh, Theatres often run as private clubs to avoid censorship, had begun to proliferate all across Europe in the late 19th century as liberal intellectuals got wind of the existence of Ibsen's banned ghosts 
and sought ways of organising to have it acted. Both the new nationalist Kilkenny Theatre and the Abbey participated in this movement towards a non-commercial theatre for theatre's sake, or in some instances, theatre for politics' sake. But in provincial England, the drive towards independent theatre was fuelled not just by Ibsen, but by Shakespeare, and it was amateurs who were at the wheel. This time, though, it was not aristocratic amateurs, but artisan ones. On October the 24th, 1901, in the Church Coffee Tavern on St Peter's Gate in Stockport, Cheshire, a meeting was held to discuss, quote, a proposed new Stockport Dramatic and Literary Society. By the time the local newspapers were reporting this event, the Society's newly elected president was already expressing visionary hopes for the future. One day, he dreamed, there would be subsidised theatres, providing improving drama for local people at the expense of the public purse. But in the meantime, the only antidote to the crassness and inertia of show business was to be provided by non-professionals. And I quote, Amateurs may set an example to the professional theatrical world if they will. Theatrical managers are unfortunately bound down by commercialism and tradition. Is not the time approaching when, even in conservative England, it will be considered as necessary to have municipal theatres, conducted on artistic, as distinct from profit-making lines, as to establish libraries, art galleries, etc.? At any rate, until this happy consummation is attained, let amateurs work their hardest to raise the standard of the art. Yours, etc., Edwin T. Hayes, 31 Tatton Road North, Heaton Moor, October 30th, 1901. At the same time that the Society embraced this view of the future, it chose a name identifying it with the greatest achievements of the Shakespearean theatre's past. As the printed constitution issued the following month declares, the Society shall be called the Stockport Garrick Society. Its official stationery, as you can see, marked the, the society as sacred to Shakespeare by incorporating an engraving of Anne Hathaway's cottage. This gesture identifies Stockport's Shakespeare not with the corrupted and ambitious metropolis, but with provincial innocence and humble rustic courtship. This is Shakespeare as the people's poet, a sort of English Robert Burns, someone only truly at home among thatch roofs. As in Stratford, or indeed Tralee, this is theatre as a national folk art. Uh, and it's extraordinary, I think, how ethnic nationalisms all around Europe get so excited about cottage-owning yeomen, you know, out, out, you know, the, 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 the true soul of the country. The Stockport Garrick is usually cited as the most important of the early 20th century amateur dramatic societies for some good reasons. It was the first civic amateur club to acquire its own playhouse in 1905. It helped to stimulate a revival of artistically inclined theatre in the Northwest more generally, including the important work of the Manchester Repertory Company at the Gaiety, uh, which was run by Annie Horniman, who of course wound up bankrolling uh, the Abbey. We, we were admiring her portrait there uh, last night. And it was the first amateur group to stage plays by Ibsen and Shaw, praised for so doing by the likes of Harley Granville Barker. But the early Stockport Garrick is, if anything, even more remarkable for what it did beyond the theatre, 
for the way in which its initial productions of Shakespeare's comedies ramified outwards to become the centre of a much larger social enterprise. Like Shakespeare's playhouses at Shoreditch and the Blackfriars, the Garrick was consciously built on territory taken over from the church, and like the Kilkenny Theatre, it brought together members of different sects. In fact, Hayes had already put what became the new organisation's opening production of The Merchant of Venice into rehearsal with the Drama Society of the local Unitarian Church before deciding to split off, welcoming Anglicans, Catholics, Methodists and all and form the non-denominational Stockport Garrick, a move which only happened after the church elders discovered to their outrage that Hayes had, without permission, started to dig a tunnel under their church hall to provide invisible access between its stage left and stage right wings. The Merchant of Venice eventually had four performances at the Stockport Mechanics Institute in February and March 1902, and it was subsequently played at the Theatre Royal Stockport in December 1903, along with a new production of Twelfth Night. It clearly satisfied the area's vigorous local press. The Society's archives preserve five reviews, each from a different publication. These articles reveal, however, that although this was an impressive and large-scale production involving most of the Society's 130 members in one capacity or another, it was not in any respect an aesthetically groundbreaking one. Rather than outdoing the professionals of their time, as the elite amateurs of Kilkenny had sought to do, the Garrick was happy to follow their lead. As surviving photographs show... The costumes were such as might have been used in almost any professional Shakespearean production of the preceding 70 years. As the Manchester Evening Mail remarked, the play was presented in a very thorough manner and the staging and dressing were all that could be desired. The point of the exercise clearly wasn't to do Shakespeare innovatively, it was to do it properly, as any theatre-goer of the time would have understood it emulating the production values attained by professional companies. Although the Garrick considered its great Shakespearean revivals to be the most important part of its work, many of the intellectual energies of the society went into productions of more modern drama, including new scripts composed by members. But as pillars of an alternative theatre repertory, otherwise dominated by Ibsen and Shaw, Shakespeare's defiantly outmoded plays were here identified not just as uncommercial, but potentially as anti-commercial into the bargain. Uh, And many members of the Stockport Garrick, by the way, were very heavily involved in the cooperative movement, uh, which had started off in nearby Rochdale um, a a generation earlier. Um, Shakespeare, despite being... potentially an establishment figure, is also the the figure for a kind of uh, alternative vision here. It's clear from the archive of the Garrick and other societies like it that the underlying ideal of this new Edwardian wave of amateur Shakespeare, derived ultimately from John Ruskin and William Morris, was the restoration of the organic society, the return to an imagined collective artisan life of unalienated labour. Shakespeare's handmade drama in this reading belonged less to commercial modernity than to the spacious, ceremonious harmony of an idealised Middle Ages, less to Stockport, perhaps, than to the Forest of Arden. This, too, was a theatre made for the pleasure of making it. 
In keeping with this vision and with his society's religious origins, Edwin Hayes sought to make Shakespeare the cornerstone of an entire virtuous and cooperative way of life, and an enlightened mayor was happy to be enlisted as the society's president, as you see from the centre of the notepaper. This is an avowedly public enterprise adopted as part of the whole town's self-image. From the first, the Stockport Garrick pledged, quote, to foster and further the higher forms and aims of dramatic art and literature, ran a social programme as full as that offered by the Unitarians from whom it had seceded. This society could provide a year-round communal identity for anyone who could afford its five-shilling annual subscription. Its stated primary purpose was to stage at least three plays every season, quote, by masterminds like Shakespeare, Ibsen, George Bernard Shaw, etc., the production of whose works would in most towns involve a monetary loss, end quote. But the Garrick, which was open, unlike some earlier literary societies, to both men and women, and was thus attractive to young people of marriageable age, also held monthly social evenings involving recitations and music by members. It hosted festive occasions such as Ye Merry Spinster's Party, April 1903, and Benedict's Party, January 1904, which featured progressive whist. It ran its own orchestra, it held an annual dance, it threw garden parties, and it ran a junior section for children, a sort of thespian Sunday school, the logical concomitant of the society's view that, quote, drama is a great educational and moral force. It also ran well-advertised and well-attended fortnightly literary discussions and lectures. In its inaugural season, lectures were given on David Garrick, The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's London, Wagner, the Reformer of Opera, The Flowers of Shakespeare, and A Pilgrimage to the Shrine of Shakespeare. In time, the Society, in collaboration with the educational charity, the Ancoats Brotherhood, would organise its own pilgrimages to Stratford, where its members would meet Frank Benson. Meanwhile, they escaped into the pre-industrial world locally, as best they could, on organised rural cycling excursions, uh, which is why this is a drama society with uh, the head of a cycling section in the bottom left-hand corner uh, of the paper. They also gathered amicably for an annual picnic held initially at Reedsmere, whose woods provided, as a local paper coyly remarked, ideal spots for budding Romeos and Juliets, end quote. Fostering courtship, putting its members into contact not just with each other but with Shakespeare's flowers and possibly with both at once, Encouraging, to, encouraging them to flee the city for restorative celebrations of poetry and friendship in the unspoiled countryside, the Stockport Garrick did not just stage Shakespearean comedy, but aspired to live it. Appropriately for a society devoted to drama as a means of ethical social renewal, the Stockport Garrick, like the Kilkenny Theatre before it, enjoyed one of its triumphs with the production of that play in which civic amateur performance underpins social and domestic virtue, The Merry Wives of Windsor. The Stockport Garrick first produced this play in 1906 with, quote, new and elaborate scenery and at its climax... A special fairy dance by Miss Dora Wally and 20 children. 
Ten years later, presumably with a fresh generation of children, they chose to revive the Merry Wives of Windsor as their contribution to Manchester's celebrations for the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. The production won this banner from the self-improving Life Study Association, a banner which still proudly adorns their theatre's foyer. This remains their equivalent of the Stratford statue, the public likeness of Shakespeare, which defines their place uh, in the public sphere. Okay, we're pretty much at the postscript now. So, with the example of Kilkenny, still remembered by at least some Irish champions of non-commercial theatre, and in the wake of Yeats' research trip to Stratford, why wasn't Dublin too becoming a home of civic Shakespeare for civic Shakespeare's sake? Well, Yeats did at least hire one distinguished non-professional Shakespearean, Nugent Monk, to teach verse speaking to the Abbey's actors. And as Miles Dungan's book, No Great Shakes, 1982, reminds us, however facetiously, Dublin did have its own voluntary set to Shakespeareans too. The same year that saw the founding of the Stockport Garrick Society, 1901, also saw the establishment of the Dublin Shakespeare Society, which, boasts Dungan, is older than the state. But that's a little disingenuous, given that when it was founded, the Dublin Shakespeare Society was not exactly called that, being as it was the local branch of the British Empire Shakespeare Society. When Frank Benson visited from Stratford in 1910 to take part in readings of Shakespeare at the Gaiety, he was clearly not just making theatre for the pleasure of it when his widely reported speech in praise of Shakespeare included the phrases, I am proud to stand before you as an Anglo, and I believe in that word British society. Uh, the argument of his, uh, of his speech is essentially that um, because they're getting too involved in home rule politics, the Irish are losing the natural gaiety of their national character and need more Shakespeare to help restore it. <laughs> While the Stockport Garrick were winning their banner for staging the Merry Wives, Dublin had other things on its mind than Shakespeare's 300th, uh, the 300th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Uh, that anniversary fell, after all, at Easter 1916. And as Patrick Lonergan has shown, the memory of Shakespeare's former role as cultural mascot of imperialism long troubled the presence of his plays in the repertory of the Abbey. For the time being, Dublin was no more likely to put up a statue of Shakespeare than it was to cherish a statue of Nelson. But as Michael D. Higgins observed in Stratford, the cultural conversation across the Irish Sea is changing all the time, and former colonies such as the US and India have long been treating Shakespeare as at once popular and theirs, and former adversaries such as France and Germany have long had their own monuments to Shakespeare and their own avowed and unembarrassed national traditions of performing his plays. One of the unlikely errands which Shakespeare's 450th birthday has added to my workload has been that of joining a committee, along with the heads of the European Shakespeare Research Association, the Société Française Shakespeare, the Deutsche Shakespeare Gesellschaft, the British Council and others. And there we all are, so many 60-year-old smiling public men and women, uh, which seeks to lobby the European Parliament to mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death by declaring Shakespeare's 
Shakespeare, the first European laureate. This would be a sort of pan-civic Shakespeare, avowedly above the rival folk nationalisms, uh, which have each negotiated with his legacy in different ways. Whatever else Ireland will be commemorating come Easter 2016, I hope that its political class will be willing to support this initiative. Uh, and in the current climate, I think it's just possible that at least some of them might. Um, final postscript, I promise. In the different European countries that I've visited over the course of Shakespeare's 450th birthday celebrations, there have been parades, crownings of monuments... Uh, erectings of statues, launchings of public fireworks. For all sorts of historical and temperamental reasons, Ireland has had none of these. But it has instead marked Shakespeare's 450th better than anywhere else I have visited by staging one of Shakespeare's finest comedies in its national theatre in a manner which, frankly, and I shouldn't say this because I'm one of the governors, but in a manner which totally puts the RSC to shame and most other theatre companies in the world at the moment, I think. So, uh, to finish, and to finish many other things too, um, happy birthday to Shakespeare and long live the Abbey Theatre.